Too often we're worrying about careers and not about communication. And why is it that Jeff Bezos or Bill Gates or Warren Buffett don't know as much about the power of orchestral music and a symphonic and opera and music in general and this incredible life-enhancing um, transformation it has on people of all ages, particularly the young? I mean, there's that wonderful statistic, I'm sure you know it, that music is the only, playing a musical instrument is the only act that uh, stimulates all seven types of intelligence at the same time. And I, I always forget them, which is ironic, because I played an instrument, but it's, uh, <laughs> it's, a, it's, it's visual, uh, spatial, it's verbal linguistic, it's um, bodily kinesthetic, it's interpersonal, intrapersonal, um, and naturalistic, and it's musical harmonic rhythmic is its own intelligence. It's the only one that has all of them together. So only when you play an instrument is the whole of your brain being used in that way, in the, in the way it can be. That's how important it is. And so we've got to get our message to Melanie Bezos or, or all these people who have super wealth and saying, look, every, there's lots of good causes, but if you want to really transform society, it's, it's honestly, sometimes I think it's as simple as get people playing a string quartet um, because this power is so dramatic. Welcome everybody to the Baking, Baking Notes, Notes Podcast. We back, y'all. We're back. Oh yeah, producer Daniel's in the house. Faking Sang it, Queen. That was pretty good, right? That's Yo, great. you got pipes, man. Um, yeah. I heard Alicia Keys is looking for some more background. Ooh, pick me, pick me. I'll put you, I'll put you in touch. So <laughs> anyway, y'all, this was such a fun episode. This is the first installment of a mini series uh, featuring artists from the mainly Mozart Festival, and we're starting straight from the top. Today's guest is music director of mainly Mozart Festival, Florida Orchestra, while also serving as the chief conductor of the Staatsphilharmonie Rhineland Faust. This is Michael Francis. Great job. <laughs> Good job with the pronunciation. Thank you. So it's an awesome episode. He's definitely one of us. He's gone out, he's, he's hustling, he's learning, he's reading about history, art, so much study. We even joke about his beautifully pretentious bookcase, uh, <laughs> probably off camera. Like, but this is a guy who cares about learning, cares about education, and we really dig into that. At the crux of what he's trying to do is expand classical music as a, a vehicle, a driving force for culture, for education, not just to sell tickets as we, <laughs> we talk about, but to really communicate and advance the culture, advance the world, to develop so, empathy. This is definitely uh, a high level conversation. I think there's so many gems here and reasons why we do what we do. So if you're feeling a little down about the meaning behind why we're creating art, uh, this conversation will def is definitely the panacea to that ailment. Um, so yeah, if you're if you're if you're fucking with us, subscribe, rate us five stars, please. Uh, we're still five growing stars. the podcast. We're still growing our audience. So your uh, your feedback is our oxygen, literally. If you want to leave a review, we've read all of the reviews, y'all. So if you want to hear a review read here at the top of the episode, leave one on Spotify, Apple Music, wherever you get your podcasts. If you want to talk to us in between the episodes, join our Discord. It's growing. we got over 100 people in there. We're all hanging out. We're having a good time. And it's, it's active. It's fun. 
We love you all. They're our most dedicated fans. And it's good to actually be able to communicate. It's not a one-way street like most podcasts. A big thing, too. We started doing uh, kind of office hours, studio recitals. We're getting on calls uh, during the month, and we're talking with our fans. We're playing for each other and you know, getting those hours under the belt, getting to improve, getting to have feedback, and really grow in a like safe and a nurturing environment. If you want to give us a little cash, we're on Patreon. But last but not least, we're on all the socials. Come on, we're everywhere now. We're, we're ubiquitous. We're in your feeds. We're on YouTube. We're now on TikTok. We're on Insta. Uh, we're on your LinkedIn. Not really, but be careful we might be. So. We're DMing your girlfriend. Yeah. <laughs> we're liking all her pictures. Just like. 2017, like... <laughs> 20, 20, uh, 2012, we're poking her. Comment. Oh, yeah. Poking. Oh, man. Those were the days. We're poking her on Facebook. <laughs> so my, my top hey, eight man. on MySpace. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. We're boomers. We're boomers, oh, Trevor. No. Uh, anyway, nah, like, we hope you enjoy this episode. Like, we had so much fun, and I know we're, you're going to have some fun, too. Uh, so, without any further ado, this is our next guest. Michael Francis. Michael Francis. Yeah, baby. Yeah. Michael Francis, thank you so much for coming on the Faking Notes podcast, my man. How you doing today? I'm How very well, thank you very much. It's lovely to be here. Thank you for inviting me. It's our pleasure. It's 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 very rare that we get have a conversation with somebody as uh prolific as you and uh i i wanted to start out this question because it's it's so interesting how our world has transformed in the past two and a half years going on three years i'm wondering what were your first thoughts when you heard of the lockdowns in march 2020 like what was going through your head uh when that happened well, firstly, I thought, oh, no, I'm not going to con- get to conduct the John Passion, which was the next piece <laughs> up on the, on, the, on the list. So that was my selfish thought. Then I, of course, like everybody else, assumed, oh, we'll be through it by Easter. Um, and mm-hmm. then that slow panicking realization, uh, this is going to take a little bit longer. Uh, and then a huge amount of planning, replanning, reprogramming. And I think I spent the last two years making plans, ripping out plans, and just going around <laughs> issues. Um, so I think, like everybody, just just aghast at, firstly, what the appalling sights. I mean, my first answers I gave you were rather selfish, but in truth, also just the horror of looking around and seeing, I mean, the sights in New York were just, it was abominable. Uh, and then seeing these sort of mass graves and these large tents, it's like we've been thrust back into World War II in some small way. Um, so it was... It was an extraordinary shock for the entire world, one of which we will always see as post-COVID and pre-COVID. It is the most dramatic event of any of our lifetimes um, and the greatest shift in societal thinking of all time, perhaps. In, well, mm-hmm. since, certainly since for 100 years since the Spanish flu and World War I. I mean, it's an extraordinary thing that's happened to us, and I think it was too soon for us because we're still all trying to find our way out of it. And it seems to be grabbing us by the ankles still. Um, but it does seem better. It does, it does, I'm, I'm, I'm sort of hopefully saying this. It, it does seem better, doesn't it? In America's case, cankles. Yeah. But, uh, <laughs> uh, uh, yeah, I'm trying but, to work them off. 
it's still there. You know that the stress eating did yeah. not go well, but <laughs> no. yeah, I agree. It, it it caused a fundamental shift, I think, in even the way we consume entertainment. Yeah. Yes, and I think that's that's the thing that we're dealing with the most is, I mean, as musicians, how do people come back into concert halls? How do we now, because no longer are we battling against museums and theatres and, and, and Broadway, it's against Netflix, it's against agoraphobia, it's against fear. Um, and, so, and, and for good reason, that's understandable. But how do we start to encourage people to come back into the necessary thing of consuming art or listening to art um, as a community? And let's just jump right in. What are some of these ways to encourage people to come back in? Because there are, of course, practical things. It was kind of scary. We have an aging audience uh, on the whole going into these big venues and enjoying the live music experience together. It's kind of dangerous. <laughs> and like, like now we've had this big change. It's affected the entire world. It's affected the entire industry. What comes to your mind as a way to bring back in the audience and particularly, what do you think we should kind of leave in that past? And what should we do going forward? It's a really good question. Um, I think what we should leave in the past is that sense of um, hereditary entitlement, that we have inherited this from um, the previous generations and we should just maintain it as it is. And what we should, we should assume is the necessity of wise engaging communication. And so that, that fundamentally is the way that we, I've always tried to approach it beforehand. So I, I talk to audiences a lot and most concerts, I try to share things. I don't necessarily want them to leave understanding the dominant ninth chord of a certain piece, but I do want them to get a sense of, of connection to, to the empathy to empathize with whomever the, the composer is in the situation that they're in. So I think much more uh, conversation around meaning, um, because there is now a deeper search for that. COVID has increased that, not decreased it. And, and then, of course, people will find it in different ways. But each of us has this epic um, meaning-shaped hole in our heart. Some people say it's the God-shaped hole in our heart, and we have to fill it, and we'll fill it with something. And art is one of the great ways to do that, and the music is, for me, the greatest of all arts. Um, so that's why I think what we do is more important than ever. But we've got to, got to communicate and not just sit there and assume knowledge on behalf of our audience. That is so huge. I feel like I feel like classical music in general. Like I, I've grown up in this culture. I, I've been playing viol for twenty years. I started in public school, but I was taken into this classical music community. And uh, it is my firm belief that like classical music, the industry doesn't have a product problem. It has a marketing problem. And one thing that I've learned in recent years is that marketing doesn't have to be gross, sterile, and like this mm -hmm. practice mm -hmm. of pedantic product shilling. It's, it's, it can be exciting and engaging and, and an act of education through storytelling and performance. So as somebody who, you know, I believe shares that same view, can you break down your musical education process, like step by step? Like how do you get somebody who doesn't understand what the music's about into understanding it and then walking away with something powerful. So firstly, you, the artist has to search for it um, themselves. You have to be interested. I mean, art, art's greatest function is the ability to develop empathy, to not just um, exp to look at a picture of what someone's been through, but actually to emote with them. And I often think of the example of Shostakovich's Fifth Symphony, the ending of that, the last movement. 
None of us have lived under a, a truly dictatorial regime and to know what it means to show public um, rebellion against that in a hidden way and for everyone to recognize it. But when you play the music, you get goosebumps because you feel it, especially if you don't play it too fast. You play it the way it's meant to be done. Mm -hmm. And then it, <laughs> it goes from becoming this bombastic um, sort of celebration of Soviet in this public form, but what it truly is, which is a personal rebellion. How else can we understand what they went through? We can see pictures, we can read documents, but when you listen and you play music, you feel it. You, you have a kinetic response to it in the most extraordinary way. So that's the key, is we must um, be prepared to be brave enough to search for the meaning and narrative within the music. And if we do that, it will pour out. And then the passion for that, it just emanates from every pore. Last night, I, I had a concert where we did Mozart's Requiem um, here in Florida. And I was thinking about, well, how do we re-listen to this piece that has, of course, been so wonderfully polluted by 1984 film Amadeus and wow. Salieri and all these things? But in truth, it's really the, it's the great question of that we all go through. I mean, we're all going to die and we're all going to have to face that. And it's at its profound nature, it's Mozart's operatic sense of empathy for everybody who goes through it. So our first half, we started with a piece by Hildegard von Bingen from 900 mm -hmm. years ago. We went into a piece written by a composer born in 1952, Miguel de Betis. Then we did Britain's Sinfonia de Requiem. And we finished with Allegri Miserare from 1638 that he, he Mozart heard when he was 14 and wrote down note for note. There's that amazing story. And we did it without applause. So the point was is to, is to draw attention to all the various facets that will happen within the Mozart music that was inspired by it, music that was that inspired him. And then when you listen to the Mozart, hopefully with fresh ears. So with this, and the other thing is, it's not just brand new music, but when we listen to masterworks, listen to it with fresh ears and with with the empathy of how does it connect to where we are today? I mean, Britain's Symphony of the Requiem, 1940, the war, well, there's a war going on in Europe right now. And so how do we connect them together? And that's, I think, is the job of a conductor as a communicator and as a curator. Um, and our role has changed, I think, more dramatically since COVID, if we're wise. There's really something to be said about the act of curation. And Drew and I were always talking about this, that it's a great way to make something compelling and it can get lost a lot in music it's like here's a great piece here's a great piece uh their names all start with the letter m uh and you know what they claps but also what you're mentioning the emotional attachment being able to take people on a journey that's at least what i've started to think about when talking to audiences it's it's like unless unless it is absolutely essential to mention the key or something about a note or a motive, I, I'm like, I ignore it. It's I talk about you know, I crack a joke so they're having a good time. And then it's tell them how it makes you feel or like tell them a fact that when they're listening to it, it actually it's actually engaging. What are some techniques you you go through when it comes to one, like directly speaking with the audience and then also how you speak to them through your curation? So first and foremost, I read a lot um, about the subject. And uh, when I'm looking for it, so it's a mixed show. As the conductor, of course, I have to read many things. I'll, I always love to read people's PhDs because anyone who spends three years on one piece is worth, worth listening <laughs> <Yeah>. to. So, <laughs> and the advantage of being online is you can read all those things. Um, I also um, just love to read books. I, I enjoy reading other people's program notes at times because that often distills the piece very well into, into its sort of core thing. But, but above all, just write and think and spend time with the music and a piece of paper uh, and just and trust your instincts on it as well because they usually for like for you guys and myself is already born out of decades of experience of playing music and then when it comes to conversing um what I, my technique is um 
Uh, I sort of shove masses of information in my head. And then I don't necessarily know exactly how I'm going to start it when I walk out. I allow myself to be flexible to see and hear how the response is. I again like to try to crack a joke and, and try to relax people and just to respond. And I love it when funny things happen. People say things <laughs> like a comedian with a heckler. That's the best stuff. Oh, things that's the go best wrong. stuff, man. I love that stuff. So that's, that's great. Uh, and then I really have a passion to try to get them to listen proactively and personally. And it doesn't always work, of course, for every person. Some people come and they're too busy. Some people won't connect to a piece. But I just try to give them a key or I try to provide the key for them to be able to listen in a way that connects to their life. So, for example, we're doing Tchaikovsky's Fifth Symphony um, this week. So I'll just mention that idea. This is unusual because the fate theme we hear at the very beginning comes back in each movement. But even when he's in the, in the waltz, like in the Berlioz Symphony Fantastique, that spectre haunts him there. So the idea being is, if, is that, well, look, it's not necessarily about the external fate. It's the fact that no matter where we are, can we really escape our inner demons unless we de deal with them? And, and then just mention small things like that. Then they listen to the music in this personal way, drawing attention to their own lives. And it's always significantly bigger and better than what I think it will be. And that's the thing, and that's the humility of this, is that we may give them the key, but we're opening a door that we have no idea the scale of it. It's so much bigger, this epic conversation with the past that goes on through music. It's just an extraordinary privilege to hear it and to feel, you, you know, you can write down on a piece of paper the moments in the performance when the goosebumps are going to sweep through the audience. Isn't that extraordinary? It's, you can just you can just tell there's that those bits there's that code of the first movement of Beethoven five when it just kicks in you know when it drops to that to the you know the, the flat and sixth everyone's going to go they're going to start yeah. Rocky Balboa you're going to want to get up and start fighting I mean it's yeah. just <laughs> it's just so kinetic and powerful upon us <sighs> so it's just providing keys to unlock it for them to have a personal and proactive experience. I know for me personally, um, Michael, that you know. That that's true. Whenever a conductor has, or like even in the string quartet, like when they've like given me an opportunity to implant myself in that story, you don't have to work that hard. Like you just have to set up in volleyball. It's like just set the ball perfectly; the spike will happen. That's very well said. I totally agree with that. And I'm going to use I'm going to use that analogy and pretend it was my own. I, I, like I got you, man. No, that's <laughs> I, I I love that. That's that's the beauty. Yeah. I I wanted to uh, set <laughs> yeah <laughs> set you once more, um, because uh, in in doing a little bit of research and learning about you, yeah, it, it's apparent that you're incredibly learned. You you have an uh, like a, a voracious desire to learn more and reading. And I'm beginning to begin that phase of my life right now. And uh, I've had a fun joke about Mozart in recent years. As somebody who, who knows Mozart really well, I wanted to see uh, if this tracks with you. So uh, I believe personally that if, if Mozart were alive today, he'd be making hyper pop beats on his laptop and performing in garages for gas money and weed. Yeah. I'm, curious. <laughs> I'm curious to hear what you think. If he were alive today with all of these platforms, Instagram, Spotify, Patreon, SoundCloud, etc., what do you think Mozart would be doing if he were alive today? And furthermore, do you think he would have lived a longer life and had a better chance at financial stability? 
Yeah, I mean, that's a really good point, And it's something I, I've thought about a lot with it as well. So I, I, I think a good way of looking at it is let's go back and look at the people who had the greatest melodic gift of all time. So yeah. these are these these are not necessarily always the greatest composers, but those that you can sing their melodies, just the tunesmiths. And you would say going back, Mozart to a point, but there's actually, yes, his skills are other things. But of course, there are wonderful melodies of his you can sing. You would certainly say Tchaikovsky. I mean, you could sing off the top of your head 12 to 15 melodies immediately. You would say Prokofiev, actually. Prokofiev has an incredible gift of melody. Think of Romeo and Juliet and all those incredible songs. John Williams Um, and uh, Paul McCartney. I would say uh, even someone like Noel Gallagher in Oasis to a point. So the reason I say that is all these people have the same gift, but they have over the time it's been um, shown in very, very different genres according to the time that they live in. And of course, the one which is the most lucrative because they're smart musicians who want to be heard. And so I think that in some ways answers it. I think if we we do have Mozartian sort of level of talent today in people, I mean, someone like Thomas Addes is just extraordinary, this Mozartian gift. What Mozart had the great advantage of is the entire world went through this funnel neck of one musical style for those 30, 40 years in which you could tell who the best composer in the world was. It was Haydn, it was Mozart, and it was early Beethoven. And then, of course, Beethoven blew it up and he went outwards. So it's hard to tell because is somebody involved in garage music as talented as someone in jazz or is in classical? But that time, you could tell. You could just see Mozart was way better than Michael Haydn, who was amazing. And they were significantly better than Salieri. But Beethoven, is Beethoven better than Berlioz, than Mendelssohn? I mean, it starts to blow up, and, and then you get to the 20th century. I mean, now it's just it's everything. Um, but I would say Mozart, also, if you look at him, there's his working memory. Um, I mentioned this Allegri Miserari. So the story of that is that he went to the Vatican in the one week it was being heard in 1770, this piece of music that was so divine, no one was ever allowed to listen to it or ever allowed to see the music. (laughs) And if you saw the music, you'd be excommunicated. He heard it when he was 14, went home and wrote it down that night. Wrote it down. (laughs) Is this Spinal Tap? Like, don't even look at it. He turned it up to 11. He turned it up to 11. Don't even look. It's still ringing. (laughs) D minor. It's in D minor. It's the most special key. Um, so, so, uh, so he was, uh, that extraordinary. So I think with that work in memory, who would he be like? I think he'd be involved in music with tremendous patterns and he was a real show off. And he was also the best observer of people around him. Like Taylor Swift observes people, Adele, all these great observers of the common culture. So I'm pretty sure he would be a world superstar in rock and roll or pop or something. The one thing that I that I've learned about Mozart though is that a lot of his financial stability deteriorated because he wanted to make music that the aristocracy didn't necessarily want to hear. And because he lost favor with them, he stopped getting his funding and then he had to do the freelance thing before that was really like an established <laughs> trope like it is today. So I guess my question is like do you admire his shift to more artistic expression at the cost of commercial success? Do you think that he would have had to make that compromise today uh, for that? Yeah, I mean, so being um, I'm privileged to be the music director of the mainly Mozart Festival in San Diego, yes. and, that, and that allows me to, we've been through a long journey of his life, and COVID interrupted it, but we're going to have his last part of his journey this summer, finishing with the Requiem. 
And what, what you can tell with Mozart, firstly, a lot of the um, his ability to upset people was just his shocking irreverence <laughs> and sense of humor. I mean, if you read his letters, there's so much toilet and oh, fart geez. humor in them. It's, it's, it's hysterical. I mean, it's so scatological. It's terrible. So he had this childlike impishness, and I think the film captures that very well, Amadeus. But alongside that, he generally had no choice but to become original. So he, he wasn't going to be accepted by the emperor. He had other favorites. Mozart was a bit too wild. And he had no choice but to develop the subscription model that we still use today. He invented it. He invented it with his piano concertos. And the best way to hear Mozart, of course, is the piano concertos, followed by the opera. Piano concertos slightly more because you see him on the piano. That's his individual personal communication. But his observations of everybody around him was so adroit and so skillful and so cutting. He could see and he could mimic any style. I mean, he had the greatest education of any musician, apart from maybe Mendelssohn, who mm. was advised by Goethe nonetheless. So if you think of Mozart, he traveled and studied with everybody. By the time he was 18, he'd done his Malcolm Gladwell 10,000 hours. Mm -hmm. He was extraordinary in, and he was able to go into any single style of music he wanted to. Uh, and that's what makes him so remarkable. And regarding the money, I think what's fascinating about Mozart is that personal experience does not always connect directly to the piece of music that comes next. So, for example, when his mother died in Paris and his father uh, blamed him for this, it was actually quite a bit later that he wrote the Sinfonia Concertante for violin and viola, which the second movement is in many ways a personal requiem to her, Mozart being the viola player, his mother who played the violin. So you don't always get a connection between the, the terrible events and that happens. And, but sometimes then, like some people say, well, why did he write the G minor symphony? Well, perhaps it's because he had to deal with all those things. I mean, he lost a lot of children. I mean, we don't know the reasons, of course. But some composers you see, like Mahler, I mean, bad thing happened, bad music. Well, <laughs> even him, even he's complicated. Even that, it doesn't always tell. You can't always tell. But with Mozart, I think it's really difficult to connect sad music with sad events. And um, but he, you know, he was a bright guy who knew how to make money. But he was also then grew out of fashion. I mean. The fashion in um, in Vienna, they 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 got bored of him as well. It was tragic. I think he'd be a YouTuber just because of how like dirty <laughs> no. dirty he was. Yeah. Like it would be meme culture. He'd be he'd be great on live streams. Like he would just be improvising here and there, and you know he'd also be the guy in the piano, just sort of making jokes and saying, "What do you want? You want to hear um, Adele in the style of Spinal Tap?" And he would just do it. He'd be that guy as well. He'd be, the, he'd be that funny, genius, irritating kid that we loved and hated at the same time. <laughs> oh, I'm curious, because another reason why um, Mozart is a great case for the Malcolm Gladwells and the 10,000 hours is, of course, like all that time he put in when he was so young and he was kind of like grew up in such like a strong learning environment. And a big part of that, of course coming in from his father, from his parents. It's a very convenient uh, place to grow up when your family is, is one of the, at the time, like the biggest pedagogues out there. And so I'm curious also for someone like you, having grown up with uh, a father uh, who's a musician and growing up in this family environment, one, how important was that to your development? But even more so, I'm personally curious, how can we provide an environment like that for people who might not have that advantage, who might not have a, a, you know, a musical parent and or uncle to kind of lay that foundation early. 
Yeah, that's a really um, excellent question, and I'll answer it in two ways. Firstly, um, for me, when we had no money growing up whatsoever, I was raised in um, you know a council house in in South of England, which was Title Eight, Section Eight, something. What do you call it here? I forgot. Was, um, so we were very poor, but we were happy. It was fine. You don't know you're poor. You just you just carry on. My dad was a peripatetic double bass teacher, hardly a millionaire. But I mean, mm. I started playing the double bass when I was ten. Um, never put too much pressure on me to do it, but no, I was 11 maybe. And then within about, um, a year or so, I was on tour with the Brighton Youth Orchestra in communist Hungary playing Tchaikovsky's Fourth Symphony. So I had this really rich childhood of playing music. And by the time I was 18, because my father was a bass player, when the, all the local amateur dramatic societies or choral societies or orchestras, every town kind of had one in, in, in South England at that time would ring up for a double bass player they'd, they'd hire both of us and we <laughs> go off and do it so i got to play everything by quite a young age so that did give me a big advantage but i think the bigger point is this and i'll answer your the, the second part of your, your question is that how do we guarantee that for younger people i mean the, the thing that worries me the most um in the world right now well there's many things i'll say one of the things that worries me the most is the loss of our arts education uh, and not because I want people to come to my concerts, but because unless we have an arts education, there's almost no way for people to develop the humility and critical thinking and empathy with where we've been and where we're going. And also not just to understand it, but to emote alongside that with what they, with our, our past has been through. And that's really worrying to me because music isn't just um, something nice. It's not an entertainment. I think Aristotle says it's no longer entertainment. It's far more important than that. For him, it was the most important thing you teach the young people because it gives someone a discipline. You've both been through it. You know it. You give you a personal failure every day that you practice. You learn to listen to others. You learn to play with others. You, you listen to this music out, completely outside of your own personal world and understand what they went through. I mean, the first time I heard someone like Shostakovich, I mean, for me in East Sussex and in the late 80s, early 90s, this blew my mind to understand what he went through. I, I'm not going to get that from a school book. And then and then just this, this deep connection to music just has this physical, powerful effect upon you. And for us to deny that to young people because the utilitarian idea of, oh, stamp them stockbroker, stamp them lawyer, stamp them this, in this brave new world way is appalling. And I think the failure of um, big institutions like states, governments, and countries to recognize the necessity of arts education for an all-rounded person is absolutely tragic, and we are paying the consequences of it now. That's so fascinating. I've never heard anybody articulate it as succinctly and powerfully as you have, but I, you spoke in a way that really reminded me of like how dire and urgent the situation is for arts education and, and the funding thereof. And I'm not going to go down this rabbit hole. Trevor already <laughs> knows where I'm going, but there, there's a, uh, have you heard of Michael Saylor? No. Michael Saylor is the CEO of a company called MicroStrategy. Mm -hmm. And it is a company, it's a software company, but he is the largest holder of Bitcoin. I'm not here to like talk about Bitcoin or anything, but I heard in an interview where he, where he was talking about his mission in life is to create an endowment that funds education globally for everyone for free forever. That's wonderful. And, yeah. and, and, and I was like, wow, 
what an incredible mission and and like how could you be more mm. altruistic than trying to educate the world forever right and i was like is anybody trying to do that with music is anybody trying to endow music education mm. not just classical music education but just the act of creating music to to document your life the events in your life how culture shifts how culture evolves forever mm. And I was like, man, that seems like something we need to be working on. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, 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 and I think it's a wonderful point. And I'm so impressed with that gentleman. What a noble cause. And this is the stuff, and this is our fault, and this is conductor's fault. And I'll hold my, my, me and my profession and our feet to the fire. Mm-hmm. Too often we're worrying about careers and not about communication. And why is it that Jeff Bezos or Bill Gates or Warren Buffett don't know as much about the power of orchestral music and a symphonic and opera and music in general, and this incredible life-enhancing um, transformation it has on people of all ages, particularly the young. I mean, there's that wonderful statistic, I'm sure you know it, that music is the only, playing a musical instrument is the only act that uh, stimulates all seven types of intelligence at the same time. And I, I always forget them, which is ironic because I played an instrument. But it's, uh, <laughs> it's, uh, it's, it's visual, uh, spatial, it's verbal, linguistic, it's um, bodily, kinesthetic, it's interpersonal, intrapersonal, um, and naturalistic, and it's musical, harmonic, rhythmic is its own intelligence. That's the only one that has all of them together. So only when you play an instrument is the whole of your brain being used in that way, in the, in the way it can be. That's how important it is. And so we've got to get our message to Melanie Bezos or, or all these people who have super wealth and saying, look, every, there's lots of good causes, but if you want to really transform society, it's, it's, honestly, sometimes I think it's as simple as get people playing a string quartet um, because this power is so dramatic. And you look at this, that wonderful film, um, Master and Commander, The Far Side of the, the World with um, oh, yeah. Russell, Russell Crowe Russell Crow. and they're doing a duet. And it's this duet of between them, and it's this it's this notion of something deeper than they can speak, where words fail, music speaks. We all know that. It's the profound nature of the conversation that music is so strong because I believe it's the greatest art form because of its immediate effect upon our physiology, and it does not require language. It can reach all of us across the world at any time. Put anybody from any culture in a room, you can write down when they're going to receive goosebumps. It's that powerful an art form and we've forgotten it and, and above all we're we're so introspective navel gazing about our own audiences we're forgetting <laughs> the deeper message of why it will transform the lives of people when they're there and help them understand their own lives and the lives of others around them it's the mirror and the lamp to see yourself and to help others get through their problems and we do we completely underestimate it and we are, we think of it as this entertainment and musicians think of it as a casual entertainment and we're not up there banging the drum literally to the federal governments and the state governments and these things and talking to them and saying, look, guys, this is the thing that's going to make the difference. What, what's going on? And instead, we just sit there and try to put a plaster on the epic wounds that are happening and assuming that's going to fix it when we've got to go back and actually give the life-saving drugs before the wounds appeal. And that's things like the arts. Wow. I'm- Bars! Woo! And Let's go. That's a clip. Clip it, Dan. Clip it. <laughs> <laughs> I I think there's something you you keep coming and and circling back to that's so beautiful that it's beyond just the notes. It's beyond even necessarily the experience, but what can really make it enjoyable and transcendent is the ability to relate to it, to see yourself into it. When we're talking 
uh, about the music we love. We're bringing us into it and trying to give the keys, as you said, to the audience. And I, th- I think from for me, the, the the whole body of of art and everything and the beauty of it is to find that relatability. And you can boil almost everything down to it, master and commander. It's mm. the respect for the adversary. It's chasing after something. There is respect. No spoilers, even though the movie's been out a long time. You guys should go see it. But there's respect. The good for kind guys of the win. I just ruined it. The good yeah. guys oh, win. Yeah, okay. sorry. They'll win. Sorry. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Iron Man shows up. It's crazy. Yeah, it's the Avengers show up, but, but like the idea of just you know res- respect for the enemy, like chasing yeah. towards something, and then even a recent movie, Everything Everywhere All at Once. It's a family movie, The Matrix. It's about transformation and like growing into yourself. Like we can always boil these things down and be able to relate to it. But what seems to be trickier with music, it seems to to me to be one of the most difficult to directly relate to, particularly when there's no lyrics. It's because film, we can literally see ourselves in it because we can see it. You know, art, we can see it. Theater, it's a story. We're being told there are words here. But for so much of what we do in classical music, there's not lyrics. And I'll hear from um, my friends who haven't, they're our age, they haven't had as much music education uh, as we've been exposed to. And because there's no words, they'll say, what. I related to chorus class, but not band because there's no lyrics. I think there's beauty in that, but there's also a lot of difficulty that we have to overcome. What is it to you when it comes to these piano concerti or orchestral works when there's no lyrics? How are you able to kind of bridge that gap that we're seeing? Yeah, I mean, it's a really, it's a really good point because um, that's what Wagner was into. Is he felt the same thing? Is he felt that without the words, it, it was, or, or he said, I think Beethoven's Ninth, the Third Movement, said it all. So therefore, he needed words. We know the famous quotes. But actually, absolute music or music without words is is actually purer, and it is the really true universal language because. Anytime you read a book, you require metaphor, language, understanding. Same with poetry, you need to understand the references and the allusions. And with artwork, you need to understand various things as well to a point, unless it's more photographic uh, and more real. But with music, there's there's two things to it. There is that sort of mystery to it, but at the same time, there's always an anthropomorphic nature to the sentences and the way that it connects. The questions go, the music comes back, especially in sort of Mozart. You feel the consequent, the antecedent. You feel the natural rhythm. You feel him um, changing. And then, of course, in a fugue, you have the ultimate example of rebuilding society from one theme to the next one to the next one. So you have these pure platonic templates of what human life can be and you can only really hear that in instrumental music because once words get involved then it draws in too much of our of our own personal experiences when you're looking at uh, absolute music in that sense it's something far more noble so beethoven's fifth symphony being the most classic example there actually are lyrics to the, those opening words, which um, some John Elliott Garland discovered, which is "Nous jurons tous le faire en main," and that means we all stand with iron in hand. So it was a French revolutionary cry from Carabini's hymn to Pantheon. But actually, the piece is just as effective, if not better, when you don't know that. When you actually just know it's the darkness from C minor, and everybody sense that the the struggle to get through to C major. That is something we all go through every day, and it's for sure something we'll all go through in our lives. That is something you can apply to anything. So when you understand music as a far bigger, um, more universal template, i.e. music without words, then we discover its applicability to our lives in a much more uh, broader sense. 
with words, um, it becomes much more personal to do with the stages of our life, whether we are sort of like Susanna and Marriage of Figure at that stage, or whether we're sort of more Don Giovanni Commendatory, whatever it is as we go on, that's different. But I love the universality. And that's why I think the piano concertos and Mozart are the greatest of all in many ways, because you feel the dialogue between the hero and the Greek chorus, between the individual and society, between the doubts, the reflection, the courage and then the and then the instigators coming back to him from the orchestra this connection is how we all feel every single day that we step outside of our front door and that's why i think it's such incredible music mm. i man mm. i need to i need to pull up some mozart to share you yeah <laughs> piano share. like it's so yeah. interesting as a violist like i don't really uh listen to a lot of piano uh concerti so this I'm very inspired to uh, to get some new music in, into my life. And well, start, it, start start with start with K four eighty eight. Start with number twenty three. Start with the second second movement, F sharp minor. Start with that, and that will melt your world completely. And then flesh out from there. And just because that to me, I, I find concertis a lot of conductors sort of look down a little on concerti, think oh it's the symphony, but actually the concerti is the hardest thing we do because you're you're, you're even less in control with the concerto. <laughs> We're never really in control. It's a complete myth. So Colin Davis, who was the uh, when I was in the London Symphony Orchestra, would say, "Oh, you know, one does you lift your arm, you lower it down, and you see yeah. what happens." And that's kind of true. It's you, you never really know what's going to happen. And with concertos, it's, it's even more wild. It really is like trying to catch a slippery eel with washing up liquid on your hands. Can I can I uh, switch gears a little bit? I'm a performer, so I'm like very much biased in the way that I think about performances, right? Do you often spend time as a concert goer? Like we perform, we're we are your conductor and we we like perform for audiences, but do you spend time as a, a concert goer? And if you do, um is there something that you wish performers did more of when they were performing art from the stage? So I think one of the, the costs of being a musician is that you can lose music as your own personal art form for reflection. That is a cost of it. It's hard for me to relax to orchestral music or symphonic or something that I know. Chamber music more so, but you lose the inability to sometimes separate your critical thinking from the pure enjoyment. So I tend to listen to, to, to jazz, to, to, to folk music, to, to modern things and, and stuff as well, because that, that is the cost. And we have to recognize there is a cost to it. Um, I do like to go to the opera. Uh, whenever I go to places, I'm always struck by the same thing, that sense of, well, why are they being so entitled? Why aren't they really trying to help people here? Um, why are they sitting on top of the, the Parthenon on the Acropolis, looking down upon everybody else, say, dare you climb up here? We should be down there talking to people and encouraging them to understand that it doesn't matter how much money you have, music is here for you, or these things will help you. Um, so I feel the same thing there very often. And then sometimes I go to a concert and I'll just be completely mesmerized, blown away, and I'll fall back in love with that experience. Um, but it's harder, I would say that. Um, and when I have my time off, because I, I work quite a lot, um, I tend to not want to do too much of classical music just so I, I have a that. break of it. So I think that's that's slightly the price of what we do, um, but it's a price worth paying if you can reach if you can reach people and open up their hearts and their lives. Are what what kind of jazz are you into? Like who are you listening to? Who are your influences? So I mean I love the classics. I wouldn't say I'm a huge expert, but I mean I I do I 
I invariably go back to Miles Davis um, mm -hmm. a lot as well as a bass player. I've tried my hand listening to Charlie Mingus Charles and things. Charles Mingus, yeah. Yeah, I don't, mm -hmm. I don't always fully understand it as well as I might. But a Bill Evans, I suppose, would be a, a mm -hmm. real. My father loved him, so I, that's probably more nostalgic for me um, to listen to Bill Evans, I would say. You gave me a wonderful recommendation in uh, the K488. I was wondering if you'd be interested in a recommendation from me. Would love one. Uh, so this may challenge your your palate a little bit. And, yeah. and personally, I love when my palate's challenged. Mm -hmm. There is a group that I recently saw at the lounge here in Highland Park. They're mm -hmm. called Butcher Brown. And Butcher it's Brown. a Butcher Brown. And it's yeah. jazz, funk with hip hop influence and electronic music influence. Huh. It sounds like Jamiroquai. Yeah, a little bit, a little bit. <laughs> What's really interesting about Butcher Brown, the main guy plays trumpet, plays saxophone, and sings and raps. And he huh. go as the music transforms and moves, like he he employs, he puts on different hats. And so it's just like a really interesting musical palette. Um, I would, I would love to hear, sure. uh, love to check back in with you after you listen to Butcher Brown. I'll let you know what I think about uh, K488 and would love to have a discussion later because I, I really love his music. I recently was uh, introduced to him. So. Well, I'd love that. And when I was at university in the sort of early mid nineties, uh, acid jazz was the rigor of the day, oh, yeah. in, especially in Cardiff University. So we'd listen to Cordroy, Jamiroquai was the hero and we had all that sort of funk stuff. So I used to love all that. We always thought we were so called dress, dressing up in 1970s stuff. The irony now is everybody dresses up in 1990s clothes. That's yeah, how old that's I feel. Suddenly, <laughs> suddenly, that's it. Suddenly I'm retro and vintage. Yeah. I can't believe it. <laughs> you gotta ride the wave man oh, it's brutal ride the wave. <laughs> in my day yeah oh. <laughs> oh my back my back lower back's getting so yeah i was i was curious you alluded to it and it's very obvious you're very busy and i think some people would obviously assume oh the conductor's very busy they're the face of the orchestra they have all these things to do but i bet what a lot of people outside classical music probably don't realize either is that not only are you the face and important figure for one group more often than that conductors are involved in multiple groups they're flying out all over the world they're doing all sorts of work the travel the prep so much goes into it how, one how do you balance all that <laughs> and two when you are able to kind of find those moments of respite and i'm going to consume some other uh type of art like are, are you factoring that in are you fitting it in the margins or is it a priority you're, you're going to sit down and go to something non-musical or read a historical book not a musical book how do you balance all of this yeah, it's it's, um, it's 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 a real balance. It is tricky. So, uh, yeah, because I'm the music director in Florida, but I'm also chief conductor of the Deutsche Staatsmann Rheinland-Pfalz, and both positions take a similar amount of time. Florida is a more demanding position because as music director, you're in charge more of inviting other guests, of programming, of, of the real personnel issues within the orchestra, and overall being a communicator for the city. And uh, the Florida Orchestra has about 5% or something, even less than that, of state funding. 
uh, and 95% is is donated or ticket revenue. Germany is 95% state revenue, so it's much easier. <laughs> Come <laughs> so on, a, what's that like? Homie? I know. So it's very it's very different. So I'm not needed for fundraising and different things there. So it's a different role. And on top of that, I also have um, uh, mainly Mozart Festival in San Diego, which um, doesn't take up so much in terms of time. It's about two or three weeks in June, and now we've added something in October. But it's a huge amount in terms of being um uh, you know working closely with nancy laterno and really developing that and of course inviting all the artists and everything so conductors it's you are both your coach and quarterback um a lot of the time so it's sort of it's, it's kind of everything and then it's all the planning it's you're planning at least a couple of years out and then you're constantly learning new repertoire bringing back new repertoire you sort of it's like your head is like a giant kitchen of things that you're bringing back here and back here and and then trying to shuffle it all. And I do a lot of the communications. So I do inside the musics, which is where I do like a 45 minute talk on the piece, giving examples. Then we stop, then we perform the whole piece. They take hours of work as well. So I inflict more upon myself than I need to, but I'm trying to put my money where my mouth is with communication. So that stuff is hard in terms of the balancing. Whenever I can, I like to, to switch off uh, if possible. So, I mean, I love the flight back from Germany to America because I will just mm. gorge on bad films and that's <laughs> so so there's a moment to do that i'll do it um i do find it's necessary to read a lot so a lot of my time is reading outside of conducting uh, unfortunately i can learn music quite quickly which i think is really important as a conductor otherwise you're in you're in a world of pain or you do what carlos Kleiber did and conduct 15 pieces all your life which is uh, <laughs> and mind you, he did it he, he did it better than everybody anybody's ever lived so he's allowed to do that if he wants yeah um but the rest of us mere mortals have to have a large repertoire um i did play golf um i, I don't do it quite so much now just because you know i have a child as well daughter so i want to spend time with her and yeah it's a it's a balance but at the same time I also get quite a you know a lot of weeks off in the summer and um, you know while I'll be in Italy with my family and I'll go and see where Puccini was born. I'll do some things like that and I'll try to go to museums. Once you have a child, it changes because you're you're constantly wanting them to relive those experiences, allowing you to go back through your experiences. So there's this beautiful thing with being a father is that suddenly now I'm saying, oh Annabelle, I want you to see this piece for the first time, watch this opera. So then I get to relive it all, and I think that's going to happen for the next. 10 years while she still likes me until suddenly she's going to turn around and say, dad, you're yep. embarrassing yep. me. You're embarrassing yep. me, dad. Oh, yep. <laughs> uh, I, that, I, I love that you, you include being a father um, in like one of the important jobs that you do. Like my personal philosophy as a man is like, uh, if you prioritize me in a father, you're a person that I can, I can hang with, you know what I mean? And I love what you said about reliving some of your experiences with her and doing that. And that's beautiful. Um, the segue does not exist for this. I just wanted to hop in. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so mainly Mozart. I wanted to talk to talk about that a little bit. Um, I had the fortune of, uh, performing with Martin Chalafour and, mm. Uh, Bang Huang and Clive Green Smith uh, two years ago in October uh, out uh, in a parking lot. It was like the craziest, it was like the craziest like experience I'd ever done getting honked at. 
Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Oh, the honking. The oh, honking. Yeah. My God, it's crazy, yes. right? <laughs> um, I want Can you talk a little bit more about um, your upcoming summer residency with the Mainly Mozart Festival, and how is it unique? And like, what is that experience like working with them? Well, I mean, I. I... I still pinch myself about that gig, how I got it, because it is the all-star team. So the the of the twelve violins, twelve are concert masters. And it's just extraordinary. And you, these are from big orchestras like Martin Schallerfor. Uh, we have David Kim from the Philadelphia. I mean, it's just the, the list goes on and on. I, I I dare not to go any further in case I I leave somebody out. That would no. be heinous <laughs> crime. So I'll stop it there. Yeah, um, but it's yeah. just it's just extraordinary. And I thought a lot about you know, why do they come? There? Certainly not for the money. Um, it's because I think for them just to perform with everybody's at the same level, and for them just to come here and just play pure music. Uh, anytime you're in a big orchestra, it's always complications, personnel, politics, all sorts of things. And here it's just going back to that 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 period of music when everyone was playing the same things, that Mozart, Haydn, that that little funnel act that we went through. Uh, and just the sheer joy of playing next to somebody who's at your level and and just making music for the fun of it. And socially, it's wonderful. And the Mainly Mozart Festival was incredibly brave during COVID. It was, as you obviously took part in one of them, the, the first American <laughs> concerts. Still um, pinching myself, man. I was like, yeah. what am I doing here? <laughs> no, that was great. It's great. Being honked at. Yes, I remember. Yeah. I, I finished the Jupiter Symphony. Actually, we're doing that again this summer. I finished the Jupiter right. Symphony, this beautiful C major, this epic chord after, of course, the great celestial fugue at the end of it. And you're there melting into the skyline. You hear, <laughs> coming in C sharp. And you think, this is this is surreal, to say the least. But, but you know what? We still found a way to make music. And those mm-hmm. people got such incredible value out of it. They were so grateful. And they haven't changed that gratitude for understanding what they, they lost as a result of it. So this summer, as I mentioned, we've been going through a cycle through Mozart's life. And now we've come to year, se- uh, year six, which is the last few years of his life. So this is the Mozart clarinet concerto, the Jupiter Symphony, the, his last piano concerto. Um, the Requiem, and we're putting out things for Haydn's uh, Symphony 104. Mendelssohn Violin Concerto is very late as well for him. So it's really looking at the, the last pieces. Ironically, these you know Mendelssohn and, and Mozart were in their mid-30s when they died, but we still think of it as late Mozart. So it's really a chance to reflect on the, what, what he achieved by the end of his life. Um, and so it's a more profound time to do it. Uh, and I'm really, really excited to, to just to hear them. And as I, having just done the Requiem last night, we're doing the Robert Levin version, which is a slightly refined version of the Sussmeyer. So it's a more more transparent, more Mozart, more Mozartian one. Um, that's going to be a real pleasure. And we're still outside, um, but in a very good um, space. Um, but they won't be honking, which is good. Yeah. They might be tipping their <laughs> wine glasses. <laughs> But they won't be honking. Hey, I mean, and you can't drink and drive, so I, there I, you I go. This is a better, this is a better there situation. Yeah, yeah. But it's really, I mean, to watch these musicians play together. I mean, I've said it before, but it's it's akin to driving. I mean, the greatest Aston Martin or fighter jet. Because what's so remarkable is not just that they can move where I go; it's that they can know where I'm going before I know where I'm going. They're so fast mentally. And you think, well, what separates the, the very best musicians from the, the majority of musicians? And I think it's just that their technical ability is already so refined that they're not thinking about it. They're thinking about other things all the time with you, with the group. 
and their kinetic speed of thought is so fast. It's like David Beckham on the football pitch. If you yeah. if you hear David speak, he's 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 certainly become more articulate. You watch him on the football pitch, it's like Rembrandt in his right foot. He can see things way faster than anybody else. Maradona was the same. And these musicians are like that. And it's so inspiring. It's, it's, it, and the volume that these, I mean, there's 12 violins, six verse, six seconds. They sound louder than a symphony orchestra. It's unbelievable. So I, I encourage everybody to come. If you haven't heard the Romanian Mozart Festival, and not proselytizing for the sake of marketing, but you just got to hear how good this group is. You'll never hear anything like it. It's unbelievable. It's such an opportunity. And even thinking back to some of the most like transformative moments as a performer or as a composer, it's been in these moments like you described where you kind of get to play at that level amongst your peers. I think it's that first time you're in high school and you play in the all-state ensemble and you're like, wow, these are other people with my interest. And then you go to college and you play in the top level there. And then you get that first orchestral gig. And these kind of like, uh, obviously it's somewhat linear in this line, but these stepping stones where you take that leap and you're playing among people who have that level of interest or that experience, that relatable moments. Those are the feelings like that just warms your heart. You remember those moments. And it's true. And, and yeah. I think what's so wonderful about music is that if you think of something like American football or basketball, you mean we can play that at school, we can play that at high school. Look, I'm not going to ever be able to play in the NBA. But as a musician, <laughs> Same. as a musician, um, I can start as a child, I can work my way up and with hard work and skill, I can get to the top of my profession. I may not make it to be the top soloist, but I could get into a great orchestra. So there's something about music that has the most wonderful linear progression possibilities for anybody and everybody. And an orchestra has full of people of all sorts of shapes and sizes and from anywhere in the world. And that's its great joy is that sport is meritocratic in a similar way, but absolutely dependent upon your physical gifts. Mm-hmm. Music is different. And of course, it's such a long gestation period. And, and I love the potentiality that you have this wide open vista that you do the work, you can achieve extraordinary things. You may not be like Mozart, but you can play in a great, great orchestra. And that is amazing. And that's available to anybody if they can start and have their and, and apply themselves in the right way. That's beautiful. My, Michael, we are coming towards uh the end of our conversation but before we let you go we wanted to hit you with uh the faking five and what Mm -hmm. the faking five is it's five questions we like to ask all of our our guests and uh Mm -hmm. let's just get to it let's 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 make it quick so what's a problem in the world that needs to be fixed but no one is talking about I think we've already mentioned it. I'll go back to arts education. Um, to just understanding the arts education is not peripheral, it is not extra. It is the very core of helping us create a true community in society. Number two, if the concept of money didn't exist, how would you spend your time? Inventing money to become rich and powerful. <laughs> <laughs> that's tragic smart isn't man. that telling yeah. no i'm not sure smart i think I, I would be a bard narrating it in an ancient time with a big ma- fantastic mustache and drinking <laughs> mead mm, i've never had <laughs> mead it's never terrible it tastes like honey and wet dog don't bother it's one of the worst things <laughs> i've yeah, tasted I, I wet dog have, 
Yeah, so. it's not good. Tip, well, dip honey on it, and there you go. Yeah. Oh, okay. Mm. Uh, <laughs> okay. Come here, Merlin. Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> what's the best advice you've received and actually followed? Uh, I do remember advice a headmaster gave me when I was 13. He said, whenever you meet somebody, remember that there's 10 things you can do better than them, and they can do 10 things better than you. And that kind of, that, that sort of stuck with me. Um, so I, I think that one... And then the other one, which I really do stick with, is uh, journal and write. It's such a powerful thing to do, just to get your thoughts down. I, I highly recommend that. Is write as much as you can, and you will definitely think with greater clarity, reflection, um, and uh, and move forward in a good way. Trevor, you want to take this one? Yeah. What's your biggest failure, and how did you stage your comeback? Well, I mean, I think of auditions that I failed. I had a, I didn't have an easy experience at Royal Academy Music with a teacher in terms of, uh, he was a very good teacher, but he kind of deconstructed me and I wasn't able to bring myself back very well from that. But I would say the biggest failure, and this is one for all of us, is um, the daily one of dealing with distraction and the days that I managed to deal with distraction. But if the biggest failure is that, I think it's just the sheer repetitive nature of it is not doing what we should be doing, but doing what feels nice, like going on YouTube and watching silly videos. So <laughs> that I would say, and the comeback from that is a daily routine, like a cold shower of just trying to do the right thing every day. Oh my goodness. And finally, sorry, Trevor, I'm, I'm going to take this Bring one. it home. The final one. If you could go back in time and tell your 10 year old self something, what would it be? Michael? When you go to the disco, the girls will not be impressed by you skidding and sliding on your knees. Don't do it. They will not think you're cool and you're just going to get in trouble with your shiny gray 1980s trousers with your mum and the holes in the knees. Don't do it. Oh, that's brilliant. And, and by the way, when you get older, Michael, you're still not going to feel very comfortable around the ladies. But you, yeah. it's same, it doesn't change. You just get older yeah. with hairy ears. That's, yeah. that's my advice. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so much for taking that. You. You're actually uh, one of the first to ever take the Faking Five. And with great success, thank you very much, Michael, and, uh, for doing that. We want to roll out the purple and gold carpet for you all. Uh, like, What do you want to shine some light on? What do you want our audience to engage with? What's something that, uh, that you just want to spotlight? Um, I would say just um, support your local orchestras and, and go and see things live. Go and see bands. Go and be there in person with them, particularly coming out of COVID. And fight against that desire to just be stuck inside with Netflix. Let those evenings be the rare occurrences, not the real ones. Get out there and, and support your local arts and you'll have a wonderful time. Thank you so much, Michael Francis. It's been an honor and a privilege. We appreciate your time. And um, I'm hoping we can do this again sometime. It was a great pleasure. I thoroughly enjoyed myself. Thank you, gentlemen. Congratulations on this fascinating, uh, revealing, successful, and inspiring podcast. Well done, you. Yeah.